We're going to, for the next uh, five times in this pulpit, we're going to uh, pick up in Mark 14, and we're going to be picking subjects out of that, including Good Friday. And uh, today we'll be looking at Mary uh, in chapter 14. Next week, we'll do a study on Judas, the man who got what he wanted but lost what he had. And we'll look at that next week. And then for uh, the week before that, we'll be doing Gethsemane in Mark 14. And then for Good Friday, uh, some of our brethren are going to be sharing the picture of the cross in Mark 15. And then the final message for Easter Sunday is going to be the two bookends. There are going to be two Marys, the Mary of Mark 14, the sister of Martha and of Lazarus. And then we end with the Mary at the tomb. And so we're going to do, in light of Easter season, five messages taken out of the gospel of Mark. So if you turn to Mark 14, and we'll just pick up the story of Mary. And I'll also see, uh, look at, these are in the uh, synoptic gospels, which means it's in Matthew 26, John 12. I'll read Mark and also John, and that'll give you the, the setting of where we'll go today. And I'm going to be talking about devoted love, a love that gives its best. Listen to what it says. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he was not still a leper. That became his nickname. He'd been healed and now is throwing this party. But uh, they couldn't be there if he was still in this condition. As he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now, if you just read Mark and Matthew, you still wouldn't know who the woman was. Her name's not mentioned. But we pick it up in John, John 12, and he gives further detail to this narrative. Look there, if you would, please. Chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, 
whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii? At one denarii was a day's wages. And given to the poor. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Every church treasurer hates this verse. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with me, or with you, but you do not always have me. And he omits, be sure what this woman has done is preach wherever the gospel goes throughout the world. He omitted that, but he does tell you who led the disciples in the indignant response to the gift. That is in the narrative. Just look at three things. Then I'll try to make some appropriate points to it. Three things. Simply, what did Mary do? Very simple. What did she do? Then, what was the response to her gift by the 15 people in the room? And then, what was the response of Christ? Uh, first of all, what did Mary do? Let's consider, first of all, the circumstances for her act. We're in the last week of Christ's life on the earth. Last week. Some make it two days. Some make it Tuesday before Friday and those events. So at least we have a time frame that uh, time's running out. If you're ever going to do anything for this man on this earth, you've got less than seven days to do it. Time's running out. Um, and what is quite amazing uh, is I contrast her deed to the hostility of the day. In chapter 11 of John, the Sadducees are set on getting Jesus killed because he raised Lazarus from the dead and given him so much publicity that uh, He's becoming famous. They're wanting to make him king. Uh, the public uh, following for Jesus is just over the top because of Lazarus being raised. So we've already got the uh, Jewish court setting in motion. We've got to get rid of this man. We must kill him. That is being set in gear. During the same time as we read in John 12, Judas is looking for the opportunity to make some money. And he knows that if he could be a part of this Jewish hate and from the Sanhedrin and the religious courts, that he can be a part of it. 
along with this, as you read the different narratives in the synoptic gospels, you keep seeing the disciples, they're, they're, they're dunces. They, they're clueless. He keeps saying, I'm going to die. They don't get it. It says they didn't even get it till after his resurrection. How would you like to pour your life into 12 men that are duh about what you're going through? And he keeps announcing, I'm going to die. I must go to Jerusalem. And on the way, as you read narratives, before the upper room, they go into the room fighting over positions in the kingdom because all they can see is going to become king. He's going to become king. They have no clue of the cross. They, Peter rebukes him at the thought of the cross. You will not die. And so he's running with uh, imperceptible, dense men that don't get it. But one woman in that room got it. Fifteen people are the guests, and only one woman picks up. He's really going to die. He's really headed for the cross. And whatever I'm going to do for him in this life, I've only got days to do it. The rest of them had no clue. They had ambition. They had treachery. They had a betrayal scheme going. Uh, they come into the upper room, and Jesus said, one of you having dinner with me or supper with me is going to uh, betray me. They, they're so clueless, they don't, no one suspects Judas. That's an amazing thing. You could be running with so-called Christians, and you may have someone being used of the devil. You could run with people that do not grab the, the sensitivity of the eternal issues at stake. She, in contrast to them, she somehow got it. But you remember in Luke 10, while Martha was working in the kitchen, this Mary was always at his feet. And her heart must have been wide open. In chapter 11 of John, when there's panic going on, and uh, Martha's beside herself over Lazarus. It's Mary that gets to Jesus. Give us the explanation. She, to me, is like a rose growing in a barnyard out of the manure. Everything is garbage and waste. And this rose springs up. And her name is Mary. In a world that was hostile, treacherous, insensitive, imperceptible, one rose springs up in the midst of all the garbage, Mary. And she springs up with a devoted love that is besides the telling. The context of her deed, my Savior is going to be crucified, Treat it worse than a flayed animal. And in the context, he's in, I, I'm, in, I'm surrounded by hate, treachery. And in that context, I'm choosing, I'm choosing to pour my devotion upon Christ. It's much like us in this world today 
that where Jesus said in John 15, I want to inform you men, as they hated me, so will they hate you. If you follow close, and I think what God is doing with you and I, is he not wanting our worship uh, in the midst of a world full of hate for him? Uh, God's never been more hated and unwanted in Western world. We're having revivals in Africa. We're having great moves of God in South America. There's great moves of God going everywhere, but as this uh, post-Christian ceiling sweeps the Western world, as it has swept Europe and has moved to America, and we've kicked God out of schools, out of the judiciary, out of public life, don't mention it, don't mention it, don't mention it. In the midst of it, God is asking us in a hated culture, in a world that despises God and his son, what do you offer? Are you a part of the garbage? Are you part of that band of flowers of praise, as it were, that spring up when it doesn't seem very likely? Then the cost of her devotion. Here she she pours out a gift that uh, they believe that the ointment she poured out came from the Himalayas in India, that this kind of spice was imported there, from there, and that it could have been a family heirloom because how does Mary, we never get the sense they're a wealthy family, where does she get the money to have over a year's worth of wages in one vial that weighed maybe a pound or less. The Roman pound was 12 ounces. So maybe 12 ounces of perfume that would take you over a year's wages to accumulate. Where did you get the money? Where did you make the connection with an Indian connection all the way to India to import spices down into Roman-occupied Palestine. How did you get the gift to start with? And two, why would you part with it so freely? When you find something greater than what you hold in your hand, you can give. But as long as what you hold in your hand is your greatest gift, you'll never part with it. She could be saying, imagine her. If it wasn't for Jesus in this room, I wouldn't have my brother Lazarus. If it wasn't for Jesus, no telling what he's done for Martha personally, what he's done for Mary. This man's given me all the hope I've got. This man has been the tender touch in my life. This man, I believe, is the Messiah of Israel. And besides that, his kindness, his warmth, this treasure of God. But if you're in love with what's in your hand, you can never give it up. She said, it's dispensable. She takes a year's worth of wages in in one act. And when you read all the gospels, she started with the head. One gospel mentions his feet. The other mentions his head. It's just she covers the body. You know what? In a culture that had had never heard of Old Spice deodorant, in a culture that knew nothing hardly of 
showers, deodorant, and good aromas. No sanitation system. Jesus might have carried the fragrance from this offering all the way to Calvary. There's going to be a lot of sweating, a lot of bleeding, a lot of abuse. Could you imagine if you were able, I could still smell the fragrance from the cross amidst the blood, the gore, the nakedness, the thorns, the five wounds. He smells good. He smells good. Where did he get it? This woman sacrificed. But now, let us look at what the response of the other 14 people are. It's astounding. Uh, I, it's very easily stated. They were all critical of her. And Judas led the march. The church treasurer. That in the Greek, in uh, John 12, he continually, con it was a present tense, he continually pilfered the bag that as a whole, you know who kept the bag full? It's a bunch of women. When you read Luke, there's a group of women that follow Jesus around, and they're the ones that supplied the monetary means that he needed in his peasant ministry, as it were. And, and so they had a common bag for common needs. And Judas was the businessman, great trust. He's outraged. We get the figure, no doubt, he did real quick on it. Hey, we could have... We could have fed, uh, they figured you could have fed 300 families for one day apiece. For a denarii, you could feed a family for one day. We could have fed 300 families. And you poured this out on one man? This is terrible stewardship. The poor should have gotten that money. And what was his motive? He was a thief. You could have been helping the poor out of the bag, but you've been helping yourself, Judas. You haven't been thinking of the poor. You're just disdained that that didn't get in your hands, and you make a profit off of it. And so now all of them, the other disciples, follow Judas, and they begin to rebuke her, upbraid her in the midst of this most beautiful act. They tell her she's she doesn't know anything about giving. She, she doesn't know anything about money. She doesn't have a heart for the poor because she gave it all to Jesus. Uh, they told her her priorities were wrong. The poor should always come. That, and of course, we know that Judas had none of that in his heart. He was already plotting, scheming to sell out the Savior and, but boy, they, they just start throwing water on this woman and disgracing her, shaming her for this abandoned act of devotion for the Savior. They were too busy competing and uh, being full of treachery, as in Judah's case, or insensitivity to ever know this woman is, was the ideal woman for Jesus. Listen to how Jesus responds to her. Uh, I'll give you five responses, but let me read to you what Spurgeon said about her gift. 
What Mary does was unthinkable. It was not her duty. She didn't pay tithe here. She didn't pour out a 10% of it. Everything. Here, Lord, take my greatest possession in this life, no doubt. The family heirloom, if it was that. However, I got this at great cost. This was abandonment. This was lavish giving. I do get weary with some of you believers always negotiating your giving and never going to the foot of the cross. Figure out your giving at the foot of the cross. Ask him what he gave, 10% or everything. In light of that, let us not brag on ourselves that we give anything. For though he was rich, he became poor. I've never given so much that it put me into poverty. Never. I've given out of poverty, but I've never given so much that it made me poor. So, she just did the unthinkable. She gave over and beyond. He said seven things. What she did was all for Jesus. Two, it was an act of pure love. It was at considerable sacrifice. This is interesting. It was done with preparation. It was not a uh, extemporaneous action. It was not an impulsive gift. She had to have planned it, to have had it with her. I mean, she's, she's prepared. She did it without a word. Didn't say anything. She just did the deed. I've been around people who always talk about they're going to give. Just do it. Just do it. You don't have to tell me. Just do it. I have to give because Grant watches and sees if I put anything in. I want to see my pastor give. Get out of here, Grant. Uh, she did it while discerning the Lord's imminent death. He says she's picked up something about my death. Prepare me for my burial. Kind of like the Egyptians. I'm going to the other world and I'm being prepared. She could have done it anticipating his resurrection. This is what I think we ought to think of. Christ's response. He says, what she has done, love for me is never wasted. What you men count waste, I count as one of the greatest gifts I've ever been given in life. There's no other gift like that given to Jesus. Jesus never had any birthday parties. There's never any parties for Jesus. Look through the narrative. My grandchildren started telling me a month ahead of time so we could pray about what to buy them. <laughs> I mean, you got 13 of them. You just kind of, I like to go to Hawaii and get away from them. <laughs> then I don't get the request list. But there's no parties for Jesus. And his dedication to the temple was so... Uh, non-magnanimous that when your folks go down there with two turtle doves because they're poor people, is this the best offering you could offer to dedicate the birth of Messiah? Two lousy birds? 
Come on, I'm a king. I'm Messiah. Put out the band. And I got to get a, a borrowed donkey to even ride into Jerusalem. This is poor. This is bad. The greatest act of devotion, the most money ever spent on Jesus happens right here by Mary. And Jesus said, no act of love and poured out devotion to me will ever be wasted. I receive it. Two, Jesus commended her priority. She didn't put the poor ahead of me. You see, the poor you're going to always have. She captured the moment. She put me first. Start with Jesus first and then do all your other philanthropy and care for whoever. You know, if you like to give the United Way, that's fine. Why don't you give to Jesus and his mission first? You can get unsaved people support United Way. Unsaved people don't support Jesus and his work in the earth. I hope his people that love him will. It ought to start with us. Jesus considered Mary's gift beautiful. If you look at Mark 14, 6, he called it beautiful. What she has done is beautiful. I mean, imagine the Savior. I mean, I'm moved by the narrative. That I'm sitting here, I know that the sound of the spikes are echoing. And three days later, I'll face the Roman legion and the orders of Pilate to be crucified. And with that echoing in the background and me knowing the plot that's going on to sell me, I've got this woman that spares no expense to say, I love you, Jesus. I love you. I value you. I'm going to give you the best I got because I'm devoted to you. Jesus says to her, you seized your right moment in time. You captured the opportunity. You didn't say tomorrow. You'd only got three more tomorrows, Mary, and I'll be in a tomb. And just think, would any of you, if you had the chance, would you do the same deed if Jesus was physically among us? Just think, he's going to disappear for 2,000 years, and you can't get to his feet. You can't see him physically for 2,000 years now. I look back to have been able to tell your children, your associates, your family, I actually... I washed the feet of Jesus in the most precious gift I had. I abandoned it all for him. And when he comes back and he sees me, he's going to say, Mary, I've never forgot what you did for me in the last week of my life. I like to say this. It just was a side point. Don't worry about writing eulogies for your mother and your father. Call them up today. The eulogies are waste. It won't do the dead any good. Why do I care what they put on the epitaph? I plan to write mine so they don't make up anything. 
I love what we did with my folks. You know, my folks, my dad used to always say, well, when you bury me, if you just simply put on there, he was a Christian, you can never say any more about me. And, and I thought it was brilliant as those kids were burying them. When my mother died, we simply, right next to her, said, and she was too, and we saved on the lettering. <laughs> and we just abbreviated. Isn't that great? That's a way to save money at funerals. You know, all that stuff that we do at funerals that we never said while they were alive. And many can't wait to the grave to cool off so we could fight over what they left. You didn't love them. You didn't love them in life. You won't love them in death. Let's not think we've got forever to tell one another we love them. Whatever we're going to do, do now. Show the act of kindness, the act of love. If you love your mother, love your father, love those who've had an impact in your life, now's the time. Now's the time. Now's the time. Not tomorrow. Not tomorrow. Not tomorrow. And Mary seized it. She seized the moment. And Jesus says something about her that I find astounding. He said, uh, Matthew, Mark, when you write the record of this event, I'm saying to these men, John omitted it for whatever reason, I want this to go in the print. Wherever the gospel goes, I want this deed she did to be pronounced. I'm never, never going to let the church that I start for 2,000 years forget what Mary did for me. Is that astounding? Which I take to be, you'll never do anything out of an act of love to Jesus that he'll ever forget. He won't forget your love. And you know what he did? This is amazing. I, I wrestled with this concept, and I might have been too, uh, too technical about it, and I, I'm not sure if I'm right or wrong. I, I'm just kind of, uh, I thought about what we do for Jesus and what we do to Jesus. You know, sometimes, well, I did this for you, Lord, but in that room, she did it to the Lord. I'm pouring this on him. And that may be too technical because I ask myself, how do I personally show devotion to Jesus? You know what he did? He, Jesus, not anybody else, he moved it out to include other believers in the entourage of his affection. And he told Peter, Peter, if you love me, you'll take care of my people. Love and care for my sheep, and you will be loving me. First John says, God says, love your brothers now that you see. You can't see me. You won't see me till I come again. When I come again, you'll see me. You'll be with me forever. But I'm giving a visible manifestation of my body, my people. The only way you can touch me in this life is touch one of my people. 
And he said in Hebrews 6.10, God is not one who will forget what you have done on behalf of him in that you have shown your love to the saints. I love God. I just can't stand his people. You don't love God. You don't know God. I often say, the devil never attacks the local gangs around here. He'll make you get ticked at some believer. Because it's always to split and divide God's people. Because he hates Christ. And he hates Christ's people. Have you caught on? He accuses God's people. He doesn't accuse his own. So he says, I will never forget what you've done for my people. Let me just make some points here in closing. First thing we need to remember, no matter what the climate is that you're living in, it's always the right climate to show love to Jesus Christ. It's always the right time to love Christ. Second thing I would say, and uh, this is scary because I'm in the middle of it, religion is often dangerous. You can hang out with God and never know him. You can hang out with God for three and a half years and never come to love him. You can see him raise the dead, heal the sick, turn water to wine, and still not love him. You can wind up before him and start rallying off all the things you said you did in his name. I, I healed the sick in your name, and I cast out demons in your name, Matthew 7. And he'll say, but you never did love me. You used me, but you never loved me. You're religious to your fingernail tips, but you don't know me. And how long have you been pastoring, sir? And how long have you been wearing a clerical collar and calling yourself reverend, but you don't know me? Religion doesn't make you know God. It may insulate you from God. The hardest kids to win in this church for Christ are church kids. It's the pagan kids that we usually win for Christ. The church kids are sick of it. They've heard it for 15, 16 years, and a lot of times they've lived in homes where they haven't seen a lot of love for Christ. I ask this. Do you, I mean, only you can answer this. If you came before the Lord Jesus Christ and he said, answer one question. In all of your life, did you ever come to love me? It's like the gospel. We present the gospel and we'll do this. Would you like to escape hell? Why, sure. Any sane man would say that. Well, you need Jesus. Oh, well, if I get Jesus, I escape? Yeah, I'll, I'll take that. That's great. No, no fees, no monthlies? No. Just, just believe Jesus. Uh, you, you need to improve your marriage. Yeah, taking Jesus will improve your marriage. Well, in biblical times, you may have lost your marriage. 
Because the unbeliever doesn't want to live with a believer. See, we've, we've doctored up Jesus so much, you would never just want Jesus. He's not that appealing. He's not that lovely. You've you got to get some other benefits besides Jesus. We'll cancel hell. I promise you great man. By the way, if you put faith, you'll prosper like you never would have otherwise. He'll make you a prosperous man. Whoo, I want that. So what if we said, if you believe the gospel, you'll get God. You'll get God's best gift, Christ. You say, well, I, I don't want, uh, will that cost me anything? Well, Jesus said it may cost you everything. Uh, if I get Jesus, uh, well, I get a promotion. You may get fired. Well, I, I don't love him that much. I don't want a God that bad because you don't love him. You don't know him. And he will not know you when you die. And our churches are full all over this land of people that know about God, know the catechism, got sprinkled, baptized, even tithe, maybe. And Americans, only 2% of Americans even tithe. And still be lost forever. Jonathan Edwards had a famous sermon on enlightenment. And he says, you may study honey all your life and never have tasted it. And you can study about God, hear sermons about God. The biggest issue in this room is, do you know God? And if you know God, we could say, I've come to love him, because you cannot know him and not love him. And what is so terrible about American church life is we're not in a big depression. We're not in a world war. Everything is a social battle, racial tensions, economic prosperity, will we do or undo Obamacare, all this political landscape, none of this uh, being a Christian is scary and costly. And take me coming to this place, take this whole world, but give me Jesus. The old songwriter saying, I grew up on it, we don't sing it, it's just not the tune isn't tricky enough. I'd rather have Jesus than anything that this world affords today. But we got a woman. And wherever this gospel, wherever Mark is read, wherever Luke is read, and even wherever you read John and you want to track down who the woman was, guess what? Jesus said, I wanted to go on record for 2,000 years what you did, I'm never going to forget. Let me ask you what you're doing with your life that God will never forget. That he will say, it's so precious to me, I've recorded it, and when you come before me at even the judgment seat of Christ, and I evaluate your works, I'll say, most of what you did was maybe fit to be burned up, you know, you paid bills, you raised kids, you bought clothes, you did this, all oh, just to maintain life. Whether you were a believer or not, you had to do it. I'll burn all that up. That, does, that is no worth to me. That's just maintaining human life. 
Ah, but there's some things in there you did for me. There's some things in there that you meant it to be Godward. I think in Philippians 4, they sent an offering to Paul while he was in jail. The Philippians did. And he said in Philippians 4, what you did in the midst of the manure pile of world hostility comes up before God as a sweet-smelling fragrance, even an aroma, your little offering that you sent me. It smells good in heaven. And in this world, with all of its foul language, foul deeds, terrible morals, did you know what? We have been called to send up things that can smell good to God. The sacrifices of praise, sacrifices of you got me, uh, I'm available, my offerings, my service. If, but don't lose this emphasis. This is the technical thing I thought I got into, maybe too fuddy-duddy. Sometimes I see people working for God that I'm waiting for them just to do something to God. And you know what really makes it? Your prayer life is probably the most intimate love you can give God. Because over here, I could, pre I could be preaching this morning uh, for you, uh, maybe for a check, God forbid, that's my only motive, for make a living, it's my vocation. Uh, I pay my bills out of what this church pays me. Imagine reducing the call of God to know Jesus Christ and love him to reduce it to something you do for a paycheck. The question I have to ask, and you can't answer it. Don't try. Call me a hireling. Call me a crook. You don't know. You don't know because you don't know my motives. I can... Offer my body to be burned and not have love as the motive. I can speak in tongues and understand all mysteries, 1 Corinthians 13, and not have love. And I could have preached this whole sermon either to wow you uh, or fulfill another assignment this week. Guess what? Sometimes I've been so busy working for God that I fell out of love with God. And he said this to Ephesus. He wrote him a letter in 55 A.D. And 35 years later, they had left loving him. You could be in church and not be in love with Jesus Christ. Some of you may have never begun to love him. This woman said, he's worth everything I've got plus more. Devoted love. Oh, Ephesus, you've done a lot of things right, but you've left the first love. Oh, Laodicea, you think you're rich. You think you're a red-hot church, but you've lost the boil for me. You've lost your zeal for me. And I want to say, Mary, when I meet you in heaven, I can't wait to meet Mary. The woman Jesus wouldn't let go away for 2,000 years. You loved him. 
you loved him. What did you do last week to show Jesus you loved him? What will you do this week? I mean, a love gift. Nobody needs to know about it but you and Jesus. What will you give? Do you daily offer yourself to him? Here's my body, Lord. I give it to you. Do you offer lips that, Lord, I'm going to sing to you. You know what? I grew up in small churches, and uh, we could out sing you guys 10 to 1. You're just beginners around here. We got to have a band and everything. We were in storefront buildings practically, south side of Richmond, the dumps. You wouldn't attend there. But all we sang to him, I'll never forget it. Do you ever sing to God? Do you ever have a hymn book and when you're on your knees and praying to them? Do you ever just sing a hymn and God accepts it and says, I missed every note, but it smells good? Because <laughs> he's looking on your heart. I invite you to join the fellowship of Mary. Get at his feet. Quit worrying about being religious. Doing all the works. I read something scary. I keep it in my Bible. It's from a pastor friend of mine that uh, he was over a denominational deal, managed a bunch of churches and pastors, and he said, uh, a number of years ago I had lunch with a recently fallen pastor of note who had been discovered, had carried on numerous adulterous affairs with women who served with him at his church for a number of years. In the course of our conversation, I asked how he could go on for so long while continuing in ministry. How could you live such a double life? His response was that every week he would simply confess his sin and promise God and himself he would never let it happen again. He also made this chilling remark. I discovered that you really don't need the Holy Spirit to be successful in ministry. This was sent to be May 9th, 2009. You don't really need the Holy Spirit to pull off church. It's why our churches are so dead, so life. It's why you're not bringing maybe your friends. Your friends don't need to come to hear me preach. They need to come and see you worship. Have you found anybody you love with all your heart? This is our God. This is our God.